I'll be reading uh, Psalm 13 uh, for all six verses. Let's again listen now to the reading of God's holy word. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's seek this Lord's blessing on his holy word. O gracious God in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this psalm, as we consider this topic of assurance this evening, we pray, Father, that you would uh, give us uh, the great confidence and hope to remind us uh, that in Christ Jesus alone, uh, by your grace, that we are, uh, our salvation is secure and that our assurance is only found in what you have accomplished for us. And so we just pray that you would help us to understand these things by the, your Spirit, and that you would apply these truths to our hearts, giving us great comfort and hope. We pray for your blessing upon your word. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, here in Psalm 13, David finds himself in the midst of trouble and discouragement. And of course, we know from uh, David's life, depicted for us in uh, especially First and Second Samuel, uh, that David had many such times in his life where his soul was uh, was overwhelmed. With enemies were all surrounding around him, uh, continuously pressing their attack against him. And these enemies weren't just, of course, outsiders like the Philistines or other enemies of Israel, although they certainly uh, did press their attack at various times. But also we know that there are those who were formerly close to David, like King Saul, uh, whom David had faithfully served as one of his generals. And then later, of course, even David's own son Absalom uh, rose up against him and rebelled against him and sought to uh, take over the kingdom. What well, those times, then when you feel under attack, whether it's by sin and temptation or by the evil one, the, the, the assaults of the evil one, you can certainly identify with David then in Psalm 13, as he senses that the Lord has forgotten him and he wonders whether the Lord will hear and answer his prayer at all. But the distress depicted in here in Psalm 13 isn't just David's experience or our experience, as we know ultimately that these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words that Christ, and that would certainly fit uh, Christ's time of suffering and humiliation that he endured on our behalf. Psalm 13 are Jesus' words expressing the distress in his heart, especially as he approached the cross. A distress that culminated in his being forsaken by his heavenly father when he bore our sins and endured the just wrath and curse of God that only we deserved. 
In fact, it may even anticipate his time in the grave, as we see here in verse 2, How long will my enemy be exalted over me? And then again in verse 3, Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And so truly these are the thoughts and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with all the distress and the inner turmoil uh, expressed in Psalm 13, it actually exudes a sure and certain hope and confidence that though this time of suffering will come, that God will ultimately deliver. And that when He does, there will be a great praise and rejoicing. And we see this especially in the last two verses here. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. These verses reveal a certain assurance that the sovereign, gracious God is in control and brings about His purpose in all things. And David had this assurance because of the covenant promise that God had made to him that the Lord would establish His throne forever. And David clung to this promise in the midst of distressing times and it certainly gave him much assurance that he could even praise God in the midst of his trial. And Jesus, of course, had this assurance because He was the eternal Son of God. And God in the covenant of redemption made before the foundation of the world promised that if the Son gave Himself for the sins of the people, that God would raise Him up from the dead on the third day in power and glory. Thus proclaiming to all the world that He truly was the Son of God. Although Jesus' soul was troubled in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before His death, and even as He hung there on the cross, we know that His assurance and the promise and in His Heavenly Father's perfect plan never wavered. Well, because of what Christ then accomplished, beloved of God, we too can have assurance of God's grace and of our salvation in Christ as we acknowledge the covenant promises that the Lord has made And that by His abounding grace, mercy, and faithfulness, that He seeks to keep those promises. And it's this assurance of the believer in Christ that we consider this evening in our study of the themes from the Confession of Faith. An assurance of the grace of God in our lives truly is one of the greatest gifts that God has graciously bestowed upon us. And this assurance truly uh, follows necessarily from the fact that we persevere in faith and are preserved by the grace of God. Because if God has us in His hand, and He won't let us go, and if He won't let us go, then we can be assured that we are truly saved and secure in Him. But as we'll see... Just as it's possible to be truly assured of God's grace, it's also possible that one can have a false sense of assurance. And so this is where the confession begins in chapter 18, talking about hypocrites and other unregenerate men who may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation which hope of theirs shall perish. False assurance is when a person believes that they're saved in Christ, but they aren't. Such belief isn't a belief grounded in the truth of God, but it is often grounded in false understanding of the truth, or 
It's grounded in the trusting in their works or experiences as the grounds of their faith. And so the Reformed Presbyterian Testimony in paragraph 3 adds this, that spiritual experiences or circumstances, however worthy, such as birth of Christian parents, church membership, participation in the sacraments, the hearing of the word, good works, response to an altar call, speaking in tongues, and other real or imagined evidence of grace, do not of themselves constitute a basis for assurance of salvation. And so a person may think, that because they were born into the church, because they were baptized and raised in a Christian family, that they are then saved. But such assurance would be a false assurance. Many of the Jews during the time of Jesus believed that just because they were descendants of Abraham and had been circumcised when they were uh, eight days old, that they were then right with God. But... Jesus will go on to condemn them, saying in John 8, that you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. And again, the testimony also notes that assurance isn't chiefly based on the memory at a certain point in time of a conversion experience. And this is something that troubles uh, many true, sincere believers unnecessarily as they struggle with doubt because they can't point to an exact specific time uh, when the Lord saved them. Now it's true for for many Christians, uh, there is maybe they have a a dramatic conversion that the Lord graciously works in them, a, a, a dramatic conversion. And here we think of the Apostle Paul. Paul can look at the particular time when the Lord opened his eyes truly to salvation when he was there on the road to Damascus. At the same time, we know that many can falsely be assured because they can proudly point to a specific date and time when they went forward at a service to receive Christ, and yet their current lies give no evidence of sanctification and growth in grace. And so a dramatic conversion experience isn't the standard of our assurance of faith. And again, for many of us, maybe that uh, our salvation just kind of occurs over a gradual over time. To where we do reach the point where we come to this assurance of faith in Christ. And so again, many people have dramatic experiences, and some even do amazing works. In this slide we think of Judas. Judas was one of the twelve who followed Jesus, and when Jesus sent the twelve out uh, to, uh, to go and to proclaim the gospel and to perform, and he cast out demons and to heal, uh, Judas was right there along with them. He proclaimed the gospel. He also cast out demons. He also healed many. But Jesus says and reminds at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, He says, Many will say to Me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Your name, cast out demons in Your name, and done many wonders in Your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, You who practice lawlessness. And so again, we've talked before about those who can be pretenders in the faith. And they have a false sense of assurance, thinking that they're saved when truly they are not. 
But we also see this false sense of assurance in a false understanding of the truth. Jesus, uh, in Luke 18, uh, points out to the, uh, the disciples, the Pharisee and the, uh, the tax collector praying in the temple. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I possess, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus goes on and says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so here we see that the Pharisee falsely assumed that he was okay and that the tax collector wasn't, even though the tax collector was there right next to him praying. But of course the tax collector made no assumptions. He made no assumptions about himself or about the Pharisee. He just pleaded for God's mercy. And so that's that false understanding that the Pharisee had that gave a sense of false assurance. And so we should beware of this kind of false assurance. But we need to remember that we can actually be fully assured of our faith. Again, the confession goes on and says, Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love Him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before Him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. True assurance comes to those who have true faith. 1 John 5.20, John says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is, in, who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now these point to the infallible standard of true assurance. It is an experience, because we know experiences come and go. But it is the truth of God's Word shown to us by the Holy Spirit. And so true assurance comes through the Spirit of God, confirming in us the promises of God's Word. And again, the confession says this infallible assurance is founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of these graces unto, those whose, uh, unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And here the confession is referring to <clears throat> uh, Romans 8 verse 16. That the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And also in 1 John 4 13 where John says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And these two verses are just a sampling of the many verses that assure us of our faith in Christ. And this theme of assurance is prominent in 1 John because of the um, confusion that was brought about by false teachers. But John stresses throughout the letter that they can know the truth, that the true believers can know the truth. They can have assurance if they hold to the faith that was first delivered to them by the apostolic witness. 
And not only this, but the Spirit of God will actually confirm these truths in them, even as the Spirit does now to us, when we read the promises of God and are encouraged by them in His Word. Well, it's in this way that our assurance is confirmed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. God has made many and great promises in His Word. Right? That, we would, that He would never leave us nor forsake us. That He would not forsake the work of His own hands. That the work which Christ has begun in us will be completed to perfection. That as Jesus promised to His disciples in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And so these promises are confirmed by the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit who has been given to us as a guarantee of our future eternal inheritance in Christ. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So we're sealed. That's a, a, uh, you know, that gives us that assurance that we're sealed. Not just being stamped that, and set apart, but sealed, that the promise is sealed through the Holy Spirit and given to us. And again, note also that when you believe the Word, the Holy Spirit sealed and confirmed the truth of it as a foretaste of what was later to come. But with these extraordinary means of giving us assurance, it is through the Word, the promises of God's Word, and the working of the Spirit in us, confirming the truth of God's Word, there are also ordinary means that flow from that, uh, from them that will work to give us assurance. And these are things that we must do. And so, for example, when the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2 that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, or when Peter charges in 2 Peter 1 saying, Therefore, brethren, be either more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now here, both Paul and Peter are challenging us to strengthen and confirm the assurance that we already have. And so we see here that obedience to God's commands and doing the good works which Christ has laid out for us gives us the assurance that we're saved. Again, 1 John 2 that we read earlier, verse 3, Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word truly, the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. And so essentially, the more we do the will of God, and the more we seek to submit our will to his revealed will, well, the more we'll strengthen our assurance of faith. But of course, there are times of struggle and doubt that come upon even the strongest and the most faithful of believers. And again, this was the experience of David that we saw in Psalm 13. He was overwhelmed with trouble. And he wondered whether God had forsaken him and left him to the hands of his enemies. Such times are common for all believers at one time or another. 
in the confession notes here regarding this, that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation in diverse ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted. The reason for this are several. This can happen by failing to preserve the assurance through obedience. That is, when we don't make diligent use of the means of grace that God has given by, through prayer and study of God's word or forsaking the assembling of God's people together, we can begin to suffer a lack of assurance because we've neglected those duties which build us up and encourage us when God, which God has given uh, to build up and encourage us in our assurance. And secondly, we may struggle with assurance when we fall into temptation and sin. Right? Sin separates us from God's presence. And though the Lord never true, leaves the true believer, it can certainly seem as though he's grown distant from us. And if we lose the sense of God's presence with us, we then get discouraged and we struggle with doubts and assurance. And again, we see that reflected in Psalm 13. Thirdly, the Lord may for his perfect plan and purpose withdraw the countenance of his face from us for a time. Indeed, this is what happened with Jesus on the cross. When, when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the very moment that the wrath and curse of God was being poured out upon Jesus for our sins. And again, for us, it may be some sin. Or it might be a situation like Job, where the Lord allowed Job to be tested and tried as a way to prove his faith. And then finally related to this, and bringing again us back to Psalm 13, it may be during times of great suffering and persecution that we struggle with our assurance. And again, we wonder what God's plan and purpose in such things could possibly be for us. And so all these ways are common ways in which the believer can struggle for a time with a lack of assurance. But even as we've noted in Psalm 13, Though we may struggle and doubt for a time, we know ultimately that the Spirit of God in us remains, and that in due time, through the means of repentance, prayer, the reading, studying, singing, and preaching of God's Word, the use of the sacraments, and the fellowship of the saints, that these means of grace, accompanied by the work of the Holy Spirit, can all work to revive in us the assurance that which God has graciously granted. And so that even in the midst of trial and struggle, we can still confidently give praise to God because of the truth that He's revealed to us in His Word. That in Him, our salvation is secure. And He will never leave us nor forsake us. And so truly beloved of God, our salvation, our assurance of salvation in Christ Jesus is secure. And it's certainly a great reason to praise and glorify the name of our God. Let's pray. Well, gracious Lord in heaven, we do praise you and thank you, Father, again for this reminder that your Spirit works in us and that through your Word and the promises that you have revealed to us in your Word that we can see these and re remember even in times of suffering and affliction, in times of <clears throat> a struggle and, and doubt, that we remember Your promises. And that Your Spirit confirms within us the truth of those promises, that You will never leave us, never forsake us. 
and that our assurance of salvation is secured in Christ. Certainly, if we trusted in our own works for salvation, then we would have no assurance whatsoever because we would never know when we would have done enough and we could have never do enough. But as we look to your word and we see what Jesus Christ has done for us, the finished work of redemption which he accomplished for us when he gave himself as the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins, when he rose again in power and glory on the third day, securing that victory for us, securing for us forgiveness of sins, securing peace and reconciliation with you, securing for us the sure and certain hope of eternal life in your presence. As we remember these things, we can grow in our assurance and we can give praise to you even in the midst of those trials and struggles. And so we just praise you and thank you, O Lord, for this reminder. And again, we thank you for this, the Lord's Day. We thank you for the opportunity that you have given to us on this day to rest from our usual labors and to gather together with your people to praise and to worship your name, to fellowship together, to encourage and build up one another. And we pray that as we prepare our hearts to go into the week that lies ahead, that we'll remember these things and that we'll be confident in the promises of your word that you will be with us no matter what comes our way this week and that we would trust in you and rest in your plan and your purpose, resting in your grace each and every day, that you will use us for your glory and honor and purpose in all things. And so we just pray that you would be with us and that you would bless us. And we ask that you would have your blessing upon us even now as we go from this place and return again on the next Lord's Day. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.